0: Thanks, band. Good morning and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer, one of the pastors here. Like Ellen said earlier, we want to welcome you uh, to our church this morning. There we go. Uh, Kids, if you are in kids' church or king's kid's age, you can head off down to your classes uh, this morning, right about now. Um, Yeah, like we said, we are uh, in a sermon series this summer, uh, at least for the next few weeks, that we are calling Open mic, so it's a chance for who's ever preaching to get to answer questions that you have uh, for the pastors or to preach on something that we think is important or pertinent to our time uh, right now. And so today we're going to be preaching on Jesus and gender. But before we jump into the sermon, I want to tell you a story about uh, 10-year-old Spencer. So that's me. Uh, Don't have those Zubas, but I think they came back out of style again, but that's uh, 10-year-old Spencer. If you were to ask him, uh, tell me about gender, I probably naively would have kind of shrugged and said, well, I guess men have short hair, they uh, wear pants and don't wear makeup, and I guess women have long hair, they put on makeup, and they wear skirts. And then, in 1995, I watched the landmark brilliant film Braveheart, and all of my... (laughs) gender categories were blown out of the water. The heroes wore skirts, kilts, they wore makeup, and they had long hair. And so maybe, just maybe, uh, gender is not just about stereotypes or traditional roles. Maybe cultures and times and places also play a big role in that. So today, what we're going to do, we're going to look at Jesus, the, the central figure of the Christian faith, our Lord and Savior. For those of us who are Christians here today, we're going to look at Jesus in the world that he entered into 2,000 years ago in Israel, ruled by the ancient Romans and deeply influenced by ancient Greek thought. And we're going to see how Jesus' life, his teachings, his interactions, his miracles, and his uh, death, resurrection, and ascension, how it changed the entire world in how we view and understand gender. Now, currently, popular culture thinks Jesus' church has quite the antiquated view on gender, in that we as a culture, we've moved on from that. And even more than that, many think that Jesus and Jesus' church uh, is teaching on gender is not just old school, but it's actually even harmful. Yet yeah, today we're gonna see Jesus's brilliance and love land us uh, at the conclusion that we will see today, that is actually his teaching, the way that he interacted with people, his life, his signs and wonders, and his death and resurrection, that actually give us in the Western world these very values that we use to judge Jesus and his church. We'll get to more of that later. But first, let's look at this ancient world in which Jesus chose to come into. Now, of course, there's going to be some exceptions to what I'm going to share, but this is, in general, a summary of how the ancient world viewed both males and females and also a warning there will be some PG-13 content in the sermon here today not to be vulgar but just to clearly and accurately express the world the ancient world that Jesus entered in so first let's look at ancient Jewish culture now we're not talking here about the bible or what the bible says in fact uh, if, if you are wondering what is the Bible, especially the New Testament, but new, or especially the old but of the New, is the Bible good for women? There actually is a book with that exact title. Uh, we took our women through a study in that a few summers ago. I'd recommend that to you. But Jewish culturally at the time, uh, had this view of women, seeing women as, as less than men. In fact, there was a Jewish prayer recited by traditional Jewish men. Every single day that went something like this. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has created me a man and not a woman. An Israelite, not a Gentile, circumcised and not uncircumcised, free and not slaves. And so Jewish culture viewed women less than men. Greek culture viewed women as deformed men. Maybe you didn't know this. Great uh, teacher Aristotle, who I'm sure you learned about in philosophy class or history class, wrote, "'Females are weaker and colder in nature, "'and we should look upon the female state "'as being, as it were, a deformity, "'though one which occurs in the ordinary course of nature.'" So it's not their fault. It's just natural, but they are deformed men, Aristotle wrote. In the Roman culture, we're going to spend a little more time on it because that is the prevailing culture into which Jesus entered, viewed women simply as objects, Objects to be used. Let's look at three different ways that they did that. They viewed women as uh, an object to be used for their own lust. And so women only had value or, or got more value if they gave men pleasure. So prostitution was unbelievably common in the ancient Roman world. Kyle Harper, who's a historian, wrote, Prostitutes themselves were seen as almost worthless. The average cost of sex with a prostitute was equal to the cost of a loaf of bread in the Roman world. So Romans viewed women only having value if they gave pleasure, or they had value in being married. They were used as an object to run a Roman household. So husbands were not uh, supposed to be faithful to their wives in the Roman culture. That's what they had prostitutes for. That's what they had slaves for. In fact, Roman husbands could have sex with whoever they want as long as it was a lower class than themselves, and that was just normal. Men are like this, and men are powerful, and they can do whatever they want, while wives must stay faithful to their husbands. And if they didn't, they would bring great shame to their family. So women in the ancient Roman world had value if they were married. And third, they were also used for making children or to create heirs. So they had value if and only they bore children. Relatedly, a wife's greatest role in the Roman family was to run a household and to produce children and heirs for her husband. Big downer, right? Pretty disgusting. In, in our current eyes, our current values, This seems kind of unbelievable that uh, humanity would ever be like that. Yet this, this is the setting in which Jesus entered the world. This is the societal background. This is just what was normal. Just everyone did it. No one thought to question it. This is the world in which Jesus entered. So now, with this as our background, let's look at Jesus. We could pick nearly any one of his interactions with women, his teachings, Or how he treats his female disciples. But as we do that, we're going to pick one. Remember this backdrop. This is the world that Jesus entered into. This was just how everyone treated women. And let's look at what Jesus does. We're going to look at a story here where Jesus uh, meets a woman at a well. A a woman who was uh, a social outcast. Who had uh, lived in in great sin who was a Samaritan, which is not a Jew, is a hated ethnic minority. So there's so many layers here. But just knowing this background, let's look at how Jesus interacts with her. We're reading from uh, sections from John 4. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you only knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man who you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. And then Jesus continues in the next few verses to teach this woman about God, about who he is, and about what he came to do. Pick it up in verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah... Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and they made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I had did. So here, in just one example of Jesus' interaction with women, we see that he upholds the incredible worth and value of women, made equally in the image of God, not inferior to men, but equal in value before their creator, equally loved by him. And unlike maybe every single other man in her village, Jesus is not disgusted by her. He is not embarrassed about having a conversation with a woman in public, a theological conversation at that, which was scandalous. Author Rebecca McLaughlin writes about this. She says, Jesus' sexual ethics truly lead to human flourishing. But while Jesus defined all sex outside of marriage as sinful, he also welcomed even the most notorious sexual sinners who put their trust in him. So Jesus doesn't, to this woman, say, it's no big deal. It doesn't matter that you've had five husbands and you're living with someone else who's not a husband. He doesn't say your sin has no consequences or it's not bad or wrong, but he also welcomes her to himself. He treats her with honor and dignity. He shows her love in powerful ways. And for the first time in Jesus's ministry, here Jesus chooses to reveal that he is the Messiah, Before his 12 disciples are told about this, Jesus lets a shunned, canceled, publicly rejected woman know who he exactly is and what his mission entails. And from there, this same woman that no one else respects, no one else values, becomes the first evangelist. She tells her entire village, this is the Messiah, come look. And because of this woman and her evangelism and her faith, Many, many believe, many believe in Jesus. Here we also see that Jesus also valued both singleness and marriage. He doesn't hide the fact that she's been married before many times and and yet now is single living with another man. Yet her brokenness doesn't disgust Jesus and push, push her away from him. Her brokenness doesn't make Jesus have hatred towards her, but rather compassion as, her, as his heart swells for her and he tries to demonstrate his love towards her. And she's not less because she's not married. In fact, in Jesus' ministry, Jesus uh, does very highly speak of marriage, and including times where he calls out Jewish culture that very flippantly uh, is okay with divorce, and accepts lust of all different kinds. So Jesus highly values marriage, and at the same time, he also doesn't tell this woman that she's less because she's not married to this guy number six, or that she's less valuable because she doesn't have children. Don't know if she does, but this story doesn't mention that she has any children. And in fact, Jesus, if you know his story, if you know his followers, nearly all of his disciples were single. Jesus himself was single. Jesus' female disciples, most of them were single. And in fact, of the 12, the only one that we know uh, that wasn't single was Peter. The rest probably were single. Not only that, not only does Jesus highly value both singleness and marriage, not making one more important than the other, as ancient cultures did, Jesus turns this call that humanity had, you know much about the Old Testament, this call that humanity was given to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Now with Jesus, this command is replaced by Jesus's new call for all of us, both married and single, to not make children, but to make disciples, to spread the gospel and to spiritually multiply. The ancient culture that Jesus entered told women, you're not as valuable as women. This culture told women, you are deformed in the very nature of who you are. And your your way of having worth, your way of being valuable is by being a sexual object to a man, a runner of a home, or a producer of children. Yet Jesus, in his actions and his words, declares and demonstrates that is not true. He tells them, and you here today, listening, that they are equally loved by their creator. They're deeply valued in his eyes. And you can just imagine the effect that that had on people, that that had the effect on women. And Jesus had many women that followed him, many women that were his disciples. And as we continue to read in the book of Acts about the early church and and reading church history as well, we see that the the early church was full of women. And today, too, the global church is more female than male. We used to, you know, I used to think that uh, the the reason that this was the case is because the church just wasn't reaching men. And while there might be a slight truth to that as well, I think the much greater reality is that uh, people who are on the margins, people who feel less valued, people who don't feel as independent because they just know this broken world that we live in, look to Jesus, and he is attractive and beautiful, and they are drawn towards him. Not only that, but we see just practically the way this played out in the early churches that they would adopt female babies as well. So Roman culture said, hey, if you have a child and it's a female, they're less valuable, so you can do—you could either uh, give them away or you could literally just put them on the street or throw them in the dump. And the early church, understanding Jesus and the way that he viewed women, decided that this was not okay, and so they they would adopt these abandoned babies. And so the church, again, was full of females, both women and girls. Again, author Rebecca McLaughlin writes, Jesus' ethical reversal, based on his words and actions, made Christianity especially attractive to women in the ancient world and formed the basis of our modern belief that women are fundamentally equal to men. Far from being antithetical to women's rights, Christianity is their first and best foundation. So we don't get to where we are, where we say women's rights, where we say women are valuable, where we say treat women with respect, where we say they are equal in worth to men. We don't get there from ancient Greek philosophy, or from Jewish culture, or from Roman power we get there from Jesus himself now to move on Jesus didn't just change the way that the world viewed women he also he called and demonstrated a new way to be a man to this ancient world that saw men and told them that they should only value power and violence and lust that those were the makers of honor in being a true man So now let's look at the ancient world's view of men. In some ways, similar to women, in that if you weren't powerful or at the top of the ladder, the top of the pyramid, you were seen as less valuable. So in some ways, similar. But let's look again briefly in a big summary. Of course, there's some exceptions to this, but the Jewish view was one of a, a, a shame and honor culture. So empathy, not valued. Compassion, not valued. Forgiveness, not really valued. Or think about that prayer that we read uh, earlier. Thank you, God, that I am not a slave. Thank you, God, that I am not un- uncircumcised. Thank you, God, I am not a Gentile. So this ancient Jewish cultural view said, some people are just born into lesser states, or they made bad decisions, they suck, we're better. The ancient Greek view saw power equal to dominance. So if you have power, it is your Duty, it is your right. You should dominate people with that power. That's why you were given power. So you should lord your power over the weak. That's what a true man is. That's what true power is. That's what true greatness is. And Romans, in a similar vein, who are also very violent, thought violence is good. If you have power, use it to subdue other people. Being a soldier, being a part of the Roman Empire, being a general, being a centurion was good. It was honorable, is what you were supposed to do. And likewise, saw women as or saw saw men as just animals, especially with regards to their lust, as, as we saw earlier when we talked about how men treated women. So in the Roman view, men are just animals. They cannot control themselves. They have to have sex. And so we let them. That's good. They're exercising their dominion and power over others. Historian Tom Holland writes about this in Rome, men know men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of a road as a toilet. So this is the culture that Jesus entered in. This is the way that ancient Jewish, Greek, and Roman culture viewed men. And it is this culture, this setting, that we read this powerful interaction between Jesus and some of his friends. If you've been around here at Hiawatha, we actually preached on this passage, Jesus and Lazarus, uh, earlier in John a few months ago. We pick it up here in uh, verse 1. I believe this is uh, John 11. We'll see on the last line. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume On the Lord and wept his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So then Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. Then he said this Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. So, here in a culture that told men to be tough, to be reserved, and to look powerful. That's what true masculinity is. We see Jesus demonstrate something altogether different. Again and again, we see it here. If we read the whole chapter, we see it even more. Jesus deeply loved his friends. He loved them. Deeply. We see Jesus weep, his heart being broken, publicly crying out when someone he loved has died. Even though we know, because we know the end of the story, Jesus was so powerful that this death was soon going to be reversed. Jesus showed his deep love and his emotion as he wept for his friend's death. And here, too, we see Jesus honor God God by by not just sympathizing, which he did, which men weren't supposed to do, but not just sympathizing with his friends who have lost their loved one, but by even entering into this suffering, into this pain. And we see Jesus here use his power for the weak. Not use his power and strength for himself to make himself be worshipped or to push other people down, but he used his divine strength to rescue and to give life rather than to take it. And in fact, Jesus did bring complete dominance and utter destruction to his enemies, but it wasn't to other men. It wasn't against oppressive Rome. It wasn't against unjust Jewish powers that unjustly tried and tortured and executed him. In fact, the recipients of Jesus' powerful, destructive strength and complete defeat was Satan and sin and death. Here we see Jesus use his power to, to look into the grave and to slay death with his words. He used his strength to dominate the power of Satan over his friend Lazarus. And of course, that was not just the only thing that he did, but this scene is just the opening act for Jesus and his mission. Even though he is the king of the universe, has all power, Jesus came to serve. And the way that the God-man, Jesus Christ, would serve us would actually be through defeat and his own death. Jesus wasn't also, if we continue beyond this passage here, this story here, he wasn't just the ultimate example of what being a man looked like, but he also called out to and empowered the men that he preached to. Jesus taught powerfully that despite what culture told them, their parents told them, society told them, their hearts told them, Jesus taught that we should rely on the Spirit's power, not on our own, when receiving temptation. Jesus told men, men, you're not animals. You are not slaves to every single temptation and urge that your body has. Men, you're not animals, but rather you're created in God's image. You are humans. You are different than animals. You can and you you must control your sexual temptations and your violence. Don't just give in and say boys will be boys, but rather honor God through your bodies and your actions. And fight against sexual sin, even to the point of of, of gouging out your eyes and cutting off your hands so that you don't go to hell. And Jesus also looked at men and empowered them and called them to something different. He said, turn the other cheek. When someone hits you, don't strike them back. Don't just love your tribe and your family, but even love your enemies. He told them, men, you're not just violent, killing machines but rather use your strength and your power for others. And not just for your family or your tribe or even your nation, but even for those weaker than you, those that disgust you naturally, those who are even your enemies. Jesus called men to turn the other cheek when struck, to give to others when asked, and to even love and pray for those that hate them, even one's enemies. And like we saw earlier with women, Jesus changed not just the early church, but the entire world. Bart Erdman, who himself is a historian and not a Christian, just uh, writing about this, even though he doesn't you know, believe in Jesus, describes the early church like this. Leaders of the Christian church preached and urged an ethic of love and service. One person was not more important than another. All were on the same footing before God. The master was no more significant than the slave, the patron than the client, the husband than the wife, the powerful than the weak, or the robust than the diseased. And so the early church was not just filled with women, but also filled with slaves, with, with men who were weak, filled with servants, filled with people that were social outcasts as well. So much more that we could say here. And if this was a class, it'd be a semester long and we'd see A million more examples of this, including how Jesus changed history in the way that we view men and women. But hopefully, even more than that, hopefully this morning, you're just more in awe of who this Jesus is. The man who entered into our dark world, where the norm was misogyny and violence and hatred and pride and evil, This Jesus who came into that world and brought a great light and a new view of humanity. And while that is true, and I hope you're beginning to see that and feel that and believe that, Jesus came for such a greater reason than to just create a new culture or a new view of what humanity could be. Jesus also was God. He is the divine savior of all humanity, men and women, boys and girls. And he doesn't just give us hope that the removal of evil might happen in this world if we work really hard. But he offers even more than that. He's the creator God that made you, that planned your gender to have a significance beyond even something that you know or can understand, a meaning that is beyond yourself. In Jesus, he's also the Messiah who died so that truly all could have new life. Not just the powerful, not just those in authority, not just those who are born into the right family or who seem great in the world's eyes, but all. And maybe for you today, maybe this is still a confusing or tricky topic, and that's okay. Maybe this is very, very personal to you. That's also okay. Maybe you feel like you just never lived up to the true standards of what a man is or what a woman is, whether standards put onto you by your family of origin or your culture, or people that you respect in your life. So maybe talking about manhood or womanhood is hard because you feel like, I haven't really fit in, or I haven't lived up to who my dad is, or my coach, or my teacher, or my mom, or what I see on TV and movies. Or maybe you don't even know with confidence what gender you are. Maybe for you and for everyone else in this room, regardless of where you how confident you feel or how uh, safe you feel or how confused you feel, Jesus has good news for you. Jesus has good news for every single person in this room, regardless how you feel or what your story has been. Here it is. Jesus' good news for you is for all of humanity. Elise Fitzpatrick, who writes a fantastic book, also called Jesus and Gender, writes this, she says, my concern is that much of the teaching on gender in the church is devoid of the gospel and is therefore soul-crushing and conflict-producing. So if all we do is stop and say, look to Jesus as the great example of men and look to uh, Mary or, or Phoebe or Priscilla as the great example of what uh, biblical womanhood looks like and we never get to the gospel, it just leads to more rules, more, more, more structures that people can be beat down with or feel very prideful because they fit that well, or feel very crushed because they don't. So if we don't get to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it leads to so often what Fitzpatrick describes here, soul-crushing rules or conflict-producing conversations within groups because we're just fighting about this. But here, here's the good news. Jesus created gender. It was his idea He's behind it. Colossians 1.16 says, For in him and through him, everything was created, which includes gender, which includes you. For him, all things were created. In Jesus, all things were created. So with regards to your gender, Jesus made you the way he wanted you to be. You are not a mistake. If you're a male, he wanted you male. If you're female, he wanted you female. To be clear, and we haven't said this uh, very much here, but just in in case it's confusing, manhood and womanhood are are incredibly broad. There's many different ways to be a man, many different ways to be a woman, many different ways to be a boy or to be a girl. So not only are manhood and womanhood extremely broad in, in how they play out and what it might look like, we also have been corrupted by sin, in our hearts, and our minds, and the culture around us, we have an enemy telling us lies. But be confident in that. Jesus created you the way, he want, the way he wanted you. He wanted you to be male, or he wanted you to be female. As you noticed, as we looked at just a few instances of the way Jesus interacts with men and women in our story here, Jesus didn't come to remove gender. Did you notice that? He doesn't show up and say, Ugh, Rome, Greece, Jewish culture, They just got this all wrong. We're all just one, completely. There is no gender. There is no difference. Jesus doesn't show up and remove gender, though he does constantly push back on sinful human structures and wrong expectations put on each gender. That's very different. But he didn't come to remove gender. Rather, he created it, and he created it for a reason. He created gender as a way for us to mirror and image our God. Our God who is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet completely equal in value and in worth. Three different functions in salvation and creation in the Trinity, yet one unified God. But not only does our gender help us image our triune God, but it also helps us see and experience and feel and believe the gospel as it symbolically played out. God's relationship to his people. All throughout the Old Testament, God describes himself as a faithful husband and his people, Israel, as his bride, his wife, which is actually, if you read much or any of the Old Testament, you see it's a very unfaithful bride that continues to worship other gods rather than be faithful to God. And then when you get to the New Testament, Jesus become, makes it even more clear. He says that he is like a bridegroom. He is like a husband and the church. His people, those who put faith in him, are his bride. And so gender gives us an opportunity to regularly, every single day, as we see people interact with each other, to see the gospel play out, to feel it, to experience it, to know it, to be reminded of it. Gender in Jesus' brilliance gives us regular pictures, experiences, and examples of the gospel Jesus' sacrificial love for his bride, the church, and the church's response to that love. So the good news here today is that Jesus created your gender, and he created you with great love and with great care. And not only that, but Jesus died for all humanity. Jesus died for all, have you thought about that? Unlike other religions that say you must be of this particular family, you must be this smart, you must have worked this hard. Certain genders are closer to God. Unlike all other religions, Jesus came and died for all. It doesn't matter how confident you are in your gender, or how great of a man you are, or how great of a woman. You are. Jesus died for all. Being a man or a woman doesn't make you more or any less. In his eyes. Do you remember this Jewish prayer that we referenced earlier? This cultural prayer that Jewish men would pray every day, and I read it online. Some still do, even even to this day. This prayer that said, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm not a slave. Thank you that I'm not a woman. Listen to Jesus' gospel written to this culture. After Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the early church understood what this means, and wrote things like this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. I know you pray this every day, but it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter if you have an earthly master or you are unbelievably powerful or rich. Nor is there male or female. It doesn't matter anymore before God as if it ever did. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? It doesn't say we are the exact same. We are still different and distinct, and that's part of his plan. Yet, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Your salvation is equally the same, and it all comes through faith. So the early church, the author Paul here writes in a culture that prays this prayer daily, thinking that they're better because they're men, they're better because they're not slaves, They better because they were born as biological offspring of this one guy, Abraham. The church writes to those people and says, actually, that doesn't matter anymore. As if it ever really did. And the church was filled with both Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, servant and master, healthy and and deformed, healed and, and, and still broken, and male and female. Galatians 3 ends, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to this promise. That's what matters if you belong to Christ. As our very first word says, if you've put faith in Jesus Christ alone, not in being a great person, not in being a part of the right family, not in being a great male or a great female, but this is Jesus' good news to you today unlike maybe any other place in this world, he says, I see you completely and fully. I made you. I deeply love you. And I want you. I've chosen you. You don't have to be a better woman, better girl. You don't have to be a better man, a better boy. I'm not ashamed of you or keeping you at an arm's length until you kind of reach this certain level or until you mature or until you become more powerful or until you become fill in the blank. But he says, I just want you. I just love you. Come to me. Put your faith in me and be adopted into my family. That, that is the good news for everyone in this room here today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your, your unconditional, relentless love that you have for each one of us. God, we thank you that you made us male and female, that from creation and then into new creation, it's part of your design and is good and it's, it's good for us And it's even designed with something in uh, meaning and significance even beyond ourselves. So I pray you'd help us to understand that, to believe that gender is good, that your creation is good. And we thank you that regardless of, of, of any of that, you came into this world to bring not just a new humanity, not just a better way to interact between the sexes, but that you came in this world to bring salvation. We get to see that salvation pictured in gender, in the ways that males and females interact, and in in the ways that husbands and wives can interact. So God, we live in very confusing times. Our, Our hearts and minds deceive us. We have an enemy that lies to us, so we pray for clarity. But more than just having all the right answers, we pray that we would believe in you, that we would trust you, especially for the salvation of our souls, especially for getting our full Identity. Pray it also help us in the other things that flow out of this as well. We pray you'd have unity uh, as a church as well, even as we are in different places on this topic, even as we um, have disagreements, even as we um, are individually working through what this means in each of our lives and our families and our neighborhoods and, and, and friend groups and beyond. But God, we pray, yeah, that you would be honored and glorified in us as a church and that you would help us as we continue to work these. And we just praise you for your great salvation that uh, we saw here today. Pray this in your powerful and saving and creating name, Jesus. Amen.